Chapter Five, Part Two of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One by John Fox, edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter Five: An Account of the Inquisition, Part Two. An account of the cruel handling and burning of Nicholas Burton, an English merchant, in Spain. The fifth day of November, about the year of our Lord, 1560, Mr. Nicholas Burton, citizen sometime of London, and merchant, dwelling in the parish of Little St. Bartholomew, peaceably and quietly, following his traffic in the trade of merchandise, and being in the city of Cadiz, in the party of Andalusia, in Spain, there came into his lodging a Judas, or, as they term them, a familiar of the fathers of inquisition who asking for the said nicholas burton feigned that he had a letter to deliver into his own hands by which means he spake with him immediately and having no letter to deliver to him then the said promoter or familiar at the motion of the devil his master whose messenger he was invented another lie and said he would take lading for london in such ships as the said nicholas burton had freighted to lade if he would let any which was partly to know where he loaded his goods, that they might attach them, and chiefly to protract the time until the sergeant of the Inquisition might come and apprehend the body of the said Nicholas Burton, which they did incontinently. He then, well perceiving that they were not able to burden or charge him that he had written, spoken, or done anything there in that country against the ecclesiastical or temporal laws of the same realm, boldly asked them what they had to lay to his charge, that they did so arrest him, and bade them to declare the cause, and he would answer them. Notwithstanding they answered nothing, but commanded him with threatening words to hold his peace, and not speak one word to them. And so they carried him to the filthy common prison of the town of Cadiz, where he remained in irons fourteen days amongst thieves. All which time he so instructed the poor prisoners in the word of God, according to the good talent which God had given him in that behalf, and also in the Spanish tongue to utter the same, that in that short space he had well reclaimed several of those superstitious and ignorant Spaniards to embrace the word of God, and to reject their popish traditions. Which being known unto the officers of the Inquisition, they conveyed him laden with irons from thence to a city called Seville, into a more cruel and straighter prison called Triana, where the said fathers of the Inquisition proceeded against him secretly according to their accustomable cruel tyranny, that never after he could be suffered to write or speak to any of his nation, so that to this day it is unknown who was his accuser. Afterward, the 20th of December, they brought the said Nicholas Burton, with a great number of other prisoners, for professing the true Christian religion, into the city of Seville, to a place where the said inquisitors sat in judgment which they called Otto, with a canvas coat, whereupon, in divers parts, was painted the figure of a huge devil, tormenting a soul in a flame of fire, and on his head a copping tank of the same work. His tongue was forced out of his mouth with a cloven stick fastened upon it, that he should not utter his conscience and faith to the people, and so he was set with another Englishman of Southampton, and divers other condemned men for religion, as well Frenchmen as Spaniards, upon a scaffold over against the said Inquisition, where their sentences and judgments were read and pronounced against them. And immediately after the said sentences given, they were carried from there to the place of execution without the city, where they most cruelly burned them, for whose constant faith God is praised. 
This Nicholas Burton, by the way, and in the flames of fire, had so cheerful a countenance, embracing death with all patience and gladness, that the tormentors and enemies which stood by said that the devil had his soul before he came to the fire, and therefore they said his senses of feeling were past him. It happened that after the arrest of Nicholas Burton aforesaid, immediately all the goods and merchandise which he brought with him into Spain by the way of traffic were, according to their common usage, seized, and taken into the sequester, among which they also rolled up much that appertained to another English merchant, wherewith he was credited as factor, whereof as soon as news was brought to the merchant as well of the imprisonment of his factor, as of the arrest made upon his goods, he sent his attorney into Spain, with authority from him to make claim to his goods and to demand them, whose name was John Fronton, citizen of Bristol. When his attorney was landed at Seville, and had shown all his letters and writings to the Holy House, requiring them that such goods might be delivered into his possession, answer was made to him that he must sue by bill and retain an advocate, but all was doubtless to delay him, and they, forsooth of courtesy, assigned him one to frame his supplication for him, and other such bills of petition, as he had to exhibit into their holy court, demanding for each bill eight reals, albeit they stood him in no more stead than if he had put up none at all. And for the space of three or four months, this fellow missed not twice a day, attending every morning and afternoon at the inquisitor's palace, suing unto them upon his knees for his dispatch, but especially to the bishop of Terracone, who was at that very time chief of the Inquisition at Seville, that he of his absolute authority would command restitution to be made thereof. But the booty was so good and great that it was very hard to come by it again. At length, after he had spent four whole months in suits and requests, and also to no purpose, he received this answer from them, that he must show greater evidence and bring more sufficient certificates out of England for proof of this matter, than those which he had already presented to the court. Whereupon the party forthwith posted to London, and with all speed returned to Seville again with more ample and large letters testimonial, and certificates, according to their requests, and exhibited them to the court. Notwithstanding, the inquisitors still shifted him off, excusing themselves by lack of leisure, and for that they were occupied in more weighty affairs, and with such answers put him off four months after. At last, when the party had well nigh spent all his money, and therefore sued the more earnestly for his dispatch, they referred the matter wholly to the bishop, of whom, when he repaired unto him, he made answer, that for himself he knew what he had to do, howbeit he was but one man, and the determination appertained to the other commissioners as well as unto him. And thus by posting and passing it from one to another, the party could obtain no end to his suit. Yet for his importunity's sake, they were resolved to dispatch him. It was on this sort, one of the inquisitors, called Gasco, a man very well experienced in these practices, willed the party to resort unto him after dinner. The fellow being glad to hear this news, and supposing that his goods should be restored unto him, and that he was called in for that purpose, to talk with the other that was in prison, to confer with him about their accounts, rather through a little misunderstanding, hearing the inquisitors cast out a word, that it should be needful for him to talk with the prisoner, and being thereupon more than half persuaded that at length they meant good faith, did so and repaired thither about the evening. Immediately upon his coming, the jailer was forthwith charged with him to shut him up close in such a prison where they appointed him. The party, hoping at the first that he had been called for about some other matter, 
and seeing himself, contrary to his expectation, cast into a dark dungeon, perceived at length that the world went with him far otherwise than he supposed it would have done. But within two or three days after, he was brought into the court, where he began to demand his goods, and because it was a device that well served their turn without any more circumstance, they bid him say his Ave Maria. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris, tui Jesus, amen. The same was written word by word as he spake it, and without any more talk of claiming his goods, because it was needless, they commanded him to prison again, and entered an action against him as a heretic, forasmuch as he did not say his Ave Maria after the Romish fashion, but ended it very suspiciously, for he should have added, moreover, Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora por nobis peccatoribus, by abbreviating whereof it was evident enough, said they, that he did not follow the mediation of saints. Thus they picked a quarrel to detain him in prison a longer season, and afterward brought him forth upon their stage disguised after their manner, where sentence was given, that he should lose all the goods which he sued for, though they were not his own, and besides this, suffer a year's imprisonment. Mark Bruges, an Englishman, master of an English ship called the Minion, was burned in a city of Portugal. William Hawker, a young man about the age of sixteen years, being an Englishman, was stoned to death by certain young men in the city of Seville for the same righteous cause. Some private enormities of the Inquisition laid open by a very singular occurrence. When the crown of Spain was contested for in the beginning of the present century, by two princes, who equally pretended to the sovereignty, France espoused the cause of one competitor and England of the other. The Duke of Berwick, a natural son of James II, who abdicated England, commanded the Spanish and French forces, and defeated the English at the celebrated Battle of Almanza. The army was then divided into two parts, the one consisting of Spaniards and French, headed by the Duke of Berwick, advanced across Catalonia. The other body, consisting of French troops only, commanded by the Duke of Orleans, proceeded to the conquest of Aragon. As the troops drew near to the city of Aragon, the magistrates came to offer the keys to the Duke of Orleans, but he told them haughtily that they were rebels, and that he would not accept the keys, for he had orders to enter the city through a breach. He accordingly made a breach in the walls with his cannon, and then entered the city through it, together with his whole army. When he had made every necessary regulation there, he departed to subdue other places, leaving a strong garrison at once to overawe and defend, under the command of his lieutenant-general, M. de Legal. This gentleman, though brought up a Roman Catholic, was totally free from superstition. He united great talents with great bravery, and was the skillful officer and accomplished gentleman. The duke, before his departure, had ordered that heavy contributions should be levied upon the city in the following manner. 1. That the magistrates and principal inhabitants should pay a thousand crowns per month for the duke's table. 2. That every house should pay one pistole, which would monthly amount to eighteen thousand pistoles. 3. That every convent and monastery should pay a donative proportionable to its riches and rents. The last two contributions to be appropriated to the maintenance of the army. The money levied upon the magistrates and principal inhabitants, and upon every house, was paid as soon as demanded, but when the persons applied to the heads of convents and monasteries, they found that the ecclesiastics were not so willing as other people to part with their cash. Of the donatives to be raised by the clergy, 
the College of Jesuits to pay 2,000 pistoles, Carmelites 1,000, Augustines 1,000, Dominicans 1,000. M. de Legal sent to the Jesuits a peremptory order to pay the money immediately. The superior of the Jesuits returned for answer that for the clergy to pay money for the army was against all ecclesiastical immunities, and that he knew of no argument which would authorize such a procedure. M. de Legal then sent four companies of dragoons to quarter themselves in the college with this sarcastic message, quote, to convince you of the necessity of paying the money, I have sent four substantial arguments to your college, drawn from the system of military logic, and, therefore, hope you will not need any further admonition to direct your conduct. These proceedings greatly perplexed the Jesuits, who dispatched an express to court to the king's confessor, who was of their order. But the dragoons were much more expeditious in plundering and doing mischief than the courier in his journey so that the Jesuits, seeing everything going to wreck and ruin, thought proper to adjust the matter amicably, and paid the money before the return of their messenger. The Augustans and Carmelites, taking warning by what had happened to the Jesuits, prudently went and paid the money, and by that means escaped the study of military arguments and of being taught logic by dragoons. But the Dominicans, who were all familiars of, or agents dependent on, the Inquisition, imagined that that very circumstance would be their protection, but they were mistaken, for M. de Legal neither feared nor respected the Inquisition. The chief of the Dominicans sent word to the military commander that his order was poor, and had not any money whatever to pay the donative. For, says he, quote, the whole wealth of the Dominicans consists only in the silver images of the apostles and saints, as large as life, which are placed in our church, and which it would be sacrilege to remove. This insinuation was meant to terrify the French commander, whom the inquisitors imagined would not dare to be so profane as to wish for the possession of the precious idols. He, however, sent word that the silver images would make admirable substitutes for money, and would be more in character in his possession than in that of the Dominicans themselves, quote, For, said he, while you possess them in the manner you do at present, they stand up in niches, useless and motionless, without being of the least benefit to mankind in general, or even to yourselves. But, when they come into my possession, they shall be useful. I shall put them in motion, for I intend to have them coined, when they may travel like the apostles, be beneficial in various places, and circulate for the universal service of mankind. The inquisitors were astonished at this treatment, which they never expected to receive, even from crowned heads. They therefore determined to deliver their precious images in a solemn procession, that they might excite the people to an insurrection. The Dominican friars were accordingly ordered to march to de Legal's house, with the silver apostles and saints, in a mournful manner, having lighted tapers with them, and bitterly crying all the way, Heresy! Heresy! M. de Legal, hearing these proceedings, ordered four companies of grenadiers to line the street which led to his house, each grenadier was ordered to have his loaded fusee in one hand and a lighted taper in the other, so that the troops might either repel force with force or do honor for the farcical solemnity. The friars did all they could to raise the tumult, but the common people were too much afraid of the troops under arms to obey them. The silver images were, therefore, of necessity delivered up to M. de Legal, who sent them to the mint and ordered them to be coined immediately. The project of raising an insurrection having failed, the inquisitors determined to excommunicate M. de Legal, 
unless he would release their precious silver saints from imprisonment in the mint before they were melted down or otherwise mutilated. The French commander absolutely refused to release the images, but said they should certainly travel and do good, upon which the inquisitors drew up the form of excommunication and ordered their secretary to go and read it to M. de Legal. The secretary punctually performed his commission and read the excommunication deliberately and distinctly. The French commander heard it with great patience and politely told the secretary that he would answer it the next day. When the secretary of the Inquisition was gone, M. de Legal ordered his own secretary to prepare a form of excommunication exactly like that sent by the Inquisition, but to make this alteration instead of his name to put in those of the Inquisitors. The next morning he ordered four regiments under arms and commanded them to accompany his secretary and act as he directed. The secretary went to the Inquisition and insisted upon admittance, which, after a great deal of altercation, was granted. As soon as he entered, he read in an audible voice the excommunication sent by M. de Legal against the inquisitors. The inquisitors were all present and heard it with astonishment, never having before met with any individual who dared to behave so boldly. They loudly cried out against de Legal as a heretic, and said, This is a most daring insult against the Catholic faith. But to surprise them still more, the French secretary told them that they must remove from their present lodgings for the French commander wanted to quarter the troops in the Inquisition, as it was the most commodious place in the whole city. The inquisitors exclaimed loudly upon this occasion, when the secretary put them under a strong guard, and sent them to a place appointed by M. de Legal to receive them. The inquisitors, finding how things went, begged that they might be permitted to take their private property, which was granted, and they immediately set out for Madrid, where they made the most bitter complaints to the king but the monarch told them that he could not grant them any redress, as the injuries they had received were from his grandfather, the king of France's troops, by whose assistance alone he could be firmly established in his kingdom. Quote, had it been my own troops, said he, I would have punished them, but as it is I cannot pretend to exert any authority. In the meantime, M. de Legal's secretary set open all the doors of the Inquisition and released the prisoners, who amounted in the whole to four hundred and among these were sixty beautiful young women, who appeared to form a seraglio for the three principal inquisitors. This discovery, which laid the enormity of the inquisitors so open, greatly alarmed the archbishop, who desired M. de Legal to send the women to his palace, and he would take proper care of them, and at the same time he published an ecclesiastical censure against all such as should ridicule or blame the holy office of the inquisition. The French commander sent word to the archbishop that the prisoners had either run away or were so securely concealed by their friends, or even by his own officers, that it was impossible for him to send them back again, and therefore the Inquisition having committed such atrocious actions must now put up with their exposure. Some may suggest that it is strange crowned heads and eminent nobles did not attempt to crush the power of the Inquisition and reduce the authority of those ecclesiastical tyrants from whose merciless fangs neither their families nor themselves were secure. But astonishing as it is, superstition hath, in this case, always overcome common sense, and custom operated against reason. One prince, indeed, intended to abolish the Inquisition, but he lost his life before he became king, and consequently before he had the power so to do, for the very intimation of his design procured his destruction. This was that amiable prince, Don Carlos, 
son of Philip II, King of Spain, and grandson of the celebrated Emperor Charles V. Don Carlos possessed all the good qualities of his grandfather, without any of the bad ones of his father, and was a prince of great vivacity, admirable learning, and the most admirable disposition. He had sense enough to see into the errors of popery, and abhorred the very name of the Inquisition. He inveighed publicly against the institution, ridiculed the affected piety of the inquisitors, did all he could to expose their atrocious deeds, and even declared that if he ever came to the crown, he would abolish the inquisition and exterminate its agents. These things were sufficient to irritate the inquisitors against the prince. They, accordingly, bent their minds to vengeance and determined on his destruction. The inquisitors now employed all their agents and emissaries to spread abroad the most artful insinuations against the prince, and, at length, raised such a spirit of discontent among the people that the king was under the necessity of removing Don Carlos from court. Not content with this, they pursued even his friends, and obliged the king likewise to banish Don John, Duke of Austria, his own brother, and consequently uncle to the prince, together with the prince of Parma, nephew to the king and cousin to the prince, because they knew that both the Duke of Austria and the Prince of Parma had a most sincere and inviolable attachment to Don Carlos. Some few years after, the prince having shown great lenity and favor to the Protestants in the Netherlands, the Inquisition loudly exclaimed against him, declaring that as the persons in question were heretics, the prince himself must necessarily be one, since he gave them countenance. In short, they gained so great an ascendancy over the mind of the king, who was absolutely a slave to superstition, that, shocking to relate, he sacrificed the feelings of nature to the force of bigotry, and, for fear of incurring the anger of the Inquisition, gave up his only son, passing the sentence of death on him himself. The prince, indeed, had what was termed an indulgence, that is, he was permitted to choose the manner of his death. Roman-like, the unfortunate young hero chose bleeding and the hot bath, when the veins of his arms and legs were opened, he expired gradually, falling a martyr to the malice of the inquisitors and the stupid bigotry of his father. The Persecution of Dr. Egidio Dr. Egidio was educated at the University of Alcala, where he took his several degrees and particularly applied himself to the study of the sacred scriptures and school divinity. When the professor of theology died, he was elected into his place and acted so much to the satisfaction of every one that his reputation for learning and piety was circulated throughout Europe. Ehidio, however, had his enemies, and these laid a complaint against him to the inquisitors, who sent him a citation, and when he appeared to it, cast him into a dungeon. As the greatest part of those who belonged to the cathedral church at Seville and many persons belonging to the bishopric of Dortois highly approved of the doctrines of Aihidio, which they thought perfectly consonant with true religion, they petitioned the emperor on his behalf. Though the monarch had been educated a Roman Catholic, he had too much sense to be a bigot, and therefore sent an immediate order for his enlargement. He soon after visited the church of Valladolid, and did everything he could to promote the cause of religion. Returning home, he soon after fell sick and died at an extreme old age. The inquisitors, having been disappointed of gratifying their malice against him while living, determined, as the emperor's whole thoughts were engrossed by a military expedition, to wreak their vengeance on him when dead. Therefore, soon after he was buried, they ordered his remains to be dug out of the grave, and a legal process being carried on, they were condemned to be burnt, which was executed accordingly.
End of chapter 5, part 2